Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Robert Colville, editor of CapEx, and today I'll be talking to... Daniel Hannan. Dan is an MEP for South East England, a fan of bullfighting and Shakespeare, but is most famous as, according to The Guardian, the man who brought you Brexit. We'll be talking about why he devoted his life to taking Britain out of the EU, what the British don't understand about their own country, and why making the case for free trade is now the most important thing in politics. No, you, you come down very, very quickly after these things. Uh, you know that anyone, sportsmen, competitors, always say after the championship, I felt very flat, win or lose. And funnily enough, I knew that that was coming. But exactly a month after the vote, we had our third baby. And I'll tell you, a baby is a very, very good cure for feeling flat. So I've been rather busy since then. But um, I mean, the, the, the sports analogy doesn't, doesn't really hold up because you, um, you know, a sportsman gets to play, in a, you know, play every season or every, every four years. You, you, at a very early age, decided that you were going to devote your life to destroying the European Union, or to, to removing Britain, Britain from it. I mean, was that? I mean, what was what was it that sort of mm. led you to that? that it, was, it was Maastricht, really. It was the. I mean, I was in my first year at, at university when the EU palpably transformed itself from being a club, an association of nations that was mainly a common market, into being an entity that replicated almost all the functions of a national government. Immigration policy, foreign policy, defence, culture, media, you know. And indeed, that equipped itself with all of the attributes and trappings of statehood, of flag and a national anthem and a national day and all this kind of thing. And it was no longer possible then to pretend that we were just in a voluntary association with friendly countries. And I remember being really shocked by a casual remark made by the Latvian foreign minister when he said Latvia is now more independent than the United Kingdom. This was when the Soviet Union was breaking apart and he was being asked, are you a properly sovereign country? And he said it without trying to make any clever point. It was just such an obvious observation for him. You know, we Latvians live un under our own law, whereas you have the supremacy of a foreign court. And I thought, he's right. You know, we fought these two dreadful wars for the independence of other countries, for the, for the sovereignty of a friendly people, and then without a shot being fired in anger, we were handing it all away. And that was, that was when I decided that this was not just a political question, but it was kind of a meta question that the other ones were contained within. But surely there's, I mean, there's a big difference between I don't like this thing that's happened and I am then going to devote my entire adult life to changing it. Mm. Well, it depends on, on what you see as the magnitude of the cause. Um, 
there are lots and lots of things in politics that, like everyone else, I like, and there are lots of things I don't like. And, you know, we get the chance to have those arguments and change them at elections. But this was something much more kind of epical uh, in, its, in its scope. It was about a, a shift in power from a national government to a supranational entity. And people were quite honest in those days. They hadn't learned to, to disguise their language in the way that they have since. They were quite open about how this was the, the whole purpose of it, that the nation-state was redundant, nation-states were evil, they fought each other, they were the cause of ethnic hatred and war, we were past all that, we were going to live as, as supranational citizens of this new kind of entity. Now, something on that scale, I think, does become a sufficiently big cause in politics that it towers over other things and crowds out other things, um, and if you see it in those terms, you are prepared to, to dedicate your time and energy to doing it. Just to, to put this in context, though, if you think about, you know, my, my father was old enough to fight in the last war. Um, he and his generation, without hesitating, undertook far, far more troublesome sacrifices than that without ever having sought them out, you know. So I don't think it's, I don't think this is, you know, completely exceptional that you, you're prepared to, to, to spend a lot of time fighting for something you believe in. Uh, really, very ordinary people make that decision on a, a far greater scale when circumstances arise and never regard themselves as being heroic for doing it. But what, what interests me about, about you is that you, you have obviously this idea of Britain and this sort of attachment to quite a romantic version of Britain. Um, but you're not actually British in certain key respects. Do you think the fact that you, you, know, you were brought up in Peru, you, you witnessed uh, mm. you know, the damage that uh, uh, certain econo- the, you know, the advantages that certain economic and political systems can confer and yeah. the disadvantages of others, do you think that that sort of distance gave you a sort of yes. a greater attachment to you? Yeah, yeah. What do they know of England who only England knows? Yeah. I mean, one of the things about growing up abroad is that you don't grow up with this cynicism and this sense of defeatism and decline that a lot of people of my age grew up with in Britain. You know, because when you grow up in South America, uh, everyone's telling you how great Britain is. And, and I remember being quite shocked as a small boy, hearing adults in this country saying, oh, England's gone to the dogs, it's all over. I mean, this is, this is the end of the 70s. Those are kind of my earliest memories of, of people having political conversations. And I remember as a small child being really shocked to hear people saying that because nobody in Peru would say that about Britain. I mean, you know, for me, it was still a country where you flicked a switch and the light actually came on and where you, you know, you could drink tap water and where you, you know, you, you could pay for things with a check rather than a, with a, a briefcase. And, you know, and, and so it was, it, I, I didn't understand then. And I, I've never really understood why we have this streak of sort of national pessimism of, of, of talking ourselves down. And that was a large part, I think, of why we went into the European Union in the first place. We, we thought that we couldn't make a success of it on our own. So for you, it's as much an emotional thing as a logical thing. It's, it's not that you found you were reading, you know, Hayek or Friedman or, uh, you know, whoever it may be, and, and sort of thought, yes, this explains my worldview. It was more that you, you sort of knew what you believed and then went in search of the evidence. I, behavioral psychologists tell you that everyone does that, and, and we're all very good at spotting it in other people. And we're all very bad at spotting it in ourselves. We, um, Jonathan Haidt has that brilliant metaphor of the, the elephant and the, the rider. The, the, the elephant is our intuition and it leans towards the, the outcome that we want. And then the mahout scampers around, the mahout being our uh, conscious mind, rationalising that decision. But 
although everyone does that, you know, I've done my best to, 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 to factor that out and to be as logical about this as I can. In 10, 20, 30 years' time, when the Eurozone is still declining, the European Union is still not growing economically, is anyone really going to look back and regret what's happened? Or if you, to make that question a bit easier, would anyone have voted to join the EU now if we had not already been a member of it? And there would have been a handful. You know, there have been a few Nick Clegg type people with a real commitment to it. But I think your, your non-emotional person, your person who was completely unswayed by any particular view of Britain or Europe, at that stage would look at it and say, this is not a successful project. We don't want to be part of it. And so what was holding us in was inertia bias, what Milton Friedman calls the tyranny of the status quo. And that's not just an, an emotional thing. That's not just a basic sort of conservatism that people all have. It was also an institutional bias. Every time you have a status quo, you create a series of bureaucracies that learn how to do well under that status quo. And of course, they were the people who led the Remain campaign. The president of the Oxford uh, Conservative Association beating Nicky Morgan, as I understand it, or Nicky Griffith, mm. as she was then. You know, you, you start, you do your... It was, by the way, a very friendly campaign. And we've, been, we've been on very good terms ever since. Unlike the Boris, uh, the, 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 the thing with the... the um, was it Boris or with the, the, the votes being stashed in the back of a van? I think that happened on more than one occasion, but there was not a hint of that with me and Nicky, I'm, I'm glad to say. <laughs> but um, so, and while you're at Oxford, you, you start or, or, or join a, a group of students protesting against Europe and, um, and help save the pound even uh, in, mm. in those, those, those tender years. But you, you then sort of make the decision to become an MEP, mm. which... Is not something that most yeah. similarly ambitious and similarly. I mean, and I, I, and I, 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 I didn't know then that it was going to take so long before this issue came to a head. You know, I mean, there, there are moments, uh, frankly, when I look back and think, well, if I'd known that there wasn't going to be a referendum until 2016, you know, I could have done something rather more productive with my first two or three terms in the European Parliament. But that's easy to say with hindsight. What we've all forgotten is that when Tony Blair won in 1997, he was very clearly committed to taking us into the single currency with a referendum. He was, you know, uh, he was absolutely explicit about that, and not just the single currency. He said there are not going to be any more opt-outs. Under my leadership, Britain will never opt out. We're going to be a full leading participant of this political project. Well, of course, we didn't know then what we know now, which is that, you know, if Tony Blair were to tell you that today is Wednesday, you'd check. Uh, but we believed him, or I believed him, uh, perhaps foolishly with hindsight, and... And I thought, well, this is all coming to a head. This was, you know, late 90s. I was uh, the leader writer at The Telegraph, where you later were to join me. And I thought, well, this is one of those all-hands-on-deck moments. I wouldn't have planned to do this. I, you know, I would have never wanted to go into elected politics in my 20s. But, you know, events have dealt me this, this hand. The, of course, I feel the hand of history on my shoulders. Yeah, except of course, but it was it was it was a phantom hand because of course there was no referendum in the next five years, or in the five years after that, or in the five years after that. And I was getting to the point of thinking I totally wasted my life sitting in the European Parliament waiting for this climactic battle, this this gutter dammering that isn't going to happen at all. Uh, when of course, finally it did happen, and, and I think that uh, uh, doesn't bear thinking about it if it hadn't really. <laughs> Yeah, but, but at least I feel now vindicated in having made that decision, even if I made it too early. But, but during that time, I mean, one of the things you do, which there's a long read on you in The Guardian, which I think sets this out quite well, is, is, is the long march, is the sort of the slow mm. conversion of the Tory party and the, you know, the Tory base and the Tory members 
into from sort of you know the kind of Euroscepticism that most of us feel, which is that oh, it's not very good, but there's nothing that can be done, into actually you know building up the base a solid enough of a base of people who mm -hmm. want to get out that the the pressure is then put on on Cameron. Yes, as it turns out, but it, you know, it, but but it's put on a leader eventually. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't the only person doing that, but yes, I did spend a lot of time consciously talking people around because I always take the view that uh, ideas matter in politics. If you're, if our ideas are as convincing as we like to think, then they should convince people. I'm always surprised that there are people in politics who emotionally struggle with that. You know, they resent it when somebody, as they see it, switches sides. <laughs> yeah, surely switching sides to us is what the whole game is about, you know, and, and, and if we're right, then that should be happening all the time. So I, 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 I spent a lot of, uh, of, of time, I invested a lot of time in, in trying to convince people in one-to-one in -one arguments uh, at all levels, um, you know, party members and, and MPs and so on, and, and writing articles about it and then making speeches in the European Parliament. Um, but ultimately, everyone has to get, everyone had to go on this journey of can we reform the EU? Can't we get in there and turn it into something a bit more friendly to our interests? And they have to go through the learning curve of, of seeing why that never works. And I think what, what hastened that learning curve for a lot of people who were coming new to the argument in the last couple of years was the, the renegotiation. You know, it's so easy after the event for people to think it was somehow inevitable to say, well, it was always about immigration or it was always about populism or it was always about inequality or whatever. Absolute nonsense. You know, the, the result was close enough that it could have gone both ways. And there were lots of small factors that, that tilted it one way or the other. But of those factors, I would say that the major one was the, the palpable and pitiable failure of the prime minister to come back with a single power when he went uh, asking for a return of, of jurisdiction. Had he been able to, to recuperate just one area of policy, he could have come back and said, look, I've set the precedent now. Okay, this isn't perfect, but I've shown the power can come back as well as just always going to Brussels. We can build on this. You know, we can start pursuing a different trajectory. But he couldn't even do that. And there was a, 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 a shift in the mood that I detected in every public meeting around that time, February of, of 2016. Uh, people saying, well, hang on. Hang on. We're the second biggest net contributor. This is how they treat us now. Before we've had a vote, how would they treat us if we voted to stay? And I think if, if, if you're looking for the moment when Leave won, as I say, there were many, but if you're looking for the single biggest moment where there was a, a, a branching history and where it, it went the, the direction of Leave, it was in February when, when the EU could not bring itself to make even the slightest gesture of returning power. I find it interesting you talk about sort of changing the trajectory, because there's one thing that you, you, you've been involved with, which I don't think people will appreciate so much, which is that, uh, which is actually where we first sort of come across each other, which is localism and direct mm. democracy, which is essentially you and, to be fair, a, a, a wide variety of other people, most of them on the Conservative side, but also on the Labour side, see under Blair and Brown that the big state isn't working, that just spending more and more money on public services is not delivering the answers. And you come up with, which ties into your critique of Europe, you come up with a critique of how the state works, which pretty much is, it becomes the orthodoxy. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it became the orthodoxy rhetorically almost immediately. Um, you'll remember that uh, Douglas Carswell and I and others published our, our plan for, for a radical decentralisation of the state um, just after the uh, 
2005 general election, and there was a leadership contest going on at the time uh, with five conservative leadership candidates, four of whom immediately signed up and said, yes, I completely agree with that. So that was, that was kind of, you know, radicalism to orthodoxy in the space of 48 hours. The one who didn't, the one who held out, was Ken Clark, who magnificently flicked two liver-spotted and nicotine-stained fingers at us and said, oh, you know, I remember his, his argument was, well, the only country that does this, he said, is Switzerland. And can you name a single Swiss politician? Which, of course, is the whole bloody point. I mean, you know, that was, that's the argument for doing it. We, we've had enough of these uh, self-aggrandizing politicians. The power is dispersed and devolved and diffused. Um, so winning rhetorically, that was a, you're right, that was a very, very quick thing. Much, much tougher, actually, to translate that into a program of, of genuine decentralization because the, the state machine isn't geared up to it and an incumbent prime minister never wants to devolve power. It's easy to call for it in opposition, but when it's your own patronage powers that you're dispensing with and when it's your own uh, authority in fiscal matters or planning or whatever you're giving to it to the opposite party at local level, it's a much tougher thing to do. That said, I mean, I think there are some encouraging signs that it's happening. Uh, it's happening in terms of the devolution of the big cities at the moment. Uh, I think there is uh, also cause for optimism in the increasing fiscal devolution that we're seeing in the devolved assemblies. I think that there will be, uh, it's only a matter of time before there is an equivalent fiscal devolution in English counties and cities to counterbalance it, and that's got to be good news. Uh, but the only real disappointment in terms of the implementation I've had, the only area where I think my, our idea, I should say, because you were involved, didn't work out as well as I'd hoped, was on uh, electing the people who oversee the police. And I, I think this was just bungled in the implementation. You know, the, the elections happened at a bizarre time of year, in November, when the days are short, when we never normally vote in this country. Uh, they weren't combined with any other elections, and candidates were denied an election address. So nobody knew the election was going on. And of course, an ordinary voter doesn't say, oh, why was the candidate denied an election address? They say, I haven't bloody heard from you. Why should I vote? You know, and so unfortunately, an opportunity to have got a different kind of candidate in, high profile independence was lost. But even there, you know, there are always teething troubles. I'm hopeful that the basic principle of making the police more accountable through direct election of the people who oversee them, that's got to be a good thing. But, but you've also had um, you know, examples of the, the British sort of fetishization of the way we do things. I mean, you, you sort of achieved instant notoriety in around 2009 when you happened to mention on US TV that you didn't think the mm. NHS was the be-all and end-all. And mm. obviously Labour you know, go, Tory, Tory says he wants to kill the NHS. You know, will David Cameron defend him? It was, you know, and mm. instantly became this sort of furore just for saying something like, well, other countries have health systems which seem to do a decent job. Yes. Uh, it's funny, people are very irrational, maybe because it's healthcare, um, understandably people approach it in a different way. Um, their experience, one's experience of the NHS is bound to be good, if you think about it. In a country as wealthy and developed as this one, you should expect a certain minimum standard. And the kinds of people who become doctors and nurses are people people, generally. They are, you know, they are kind, uh, generous people who are good at interacting with others. That's the kind of people who become attracted to being nurses in the first place. So, so you, you don't want to look ungrateful Having come away from everyone having been very nice, and even if there was a bit of inefficiency, they did the job, and the operation was a success, and everyone was terribly sweet to it, and you didn't have to pay a penny, it looks then incredibly mean-minded to say that there might be a better system out there. But if you think about it, we, we don't apply that criterion to anything else. You know, I came here from Brussels this morning. 
Uh, I didn't, as I got off the plane, fall to my knees on the tarmac and say, British Airways has saved my life. They flew me all the way here from Brussels and they didn't crash. Okay, the flight was a bit late, but here I am. You know, I owe my life to British Airways. But the, the reason we don't is because we assume a basic level of competence from the pilot and from the rest of the airline. And assuming that basic level of competence doesn't insult them, it compliments them. And, I, you know, I wish we could do the same when it comes to healthcare. Of course, in a country like this, you expect a, a, a basic standard. Of course, our healthcare system is going to be better than Paraguay's or whatever. That doesn't mean it's as good as it could be. And the experience of comparable developed countries that have mixed systems where you have private and public interacting together rather than the, the, the monopoly that we have, almost all of them have better outcomes than we do. Not all of them. We're not at the bottom of the list. But... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. We're a lot further down than we could be. So, which sort of brings me on to something else I wanted to ask you about. When you're thinking about policies or thinking about principles, I mean, do you tend to start from first principles, or do you tend to look at what's working in other countries? I mean, uh, are you a sort of are you a, a theorist? Uh, are you a mm. theorist? Is that even a, even a word? Yeah. Uh, are you? I mean, do, do you sort of do you think theoretically? Or it was think a, a, a sure a sure symptom of a distempered state that it, it resorts to theories. Um, you have to start with what you can see working. I, I, I think in terms of practical politics rather than philosophy, you have to start with what is feasible. And what's feasible in a democracy may not be what's feasible in a kind of platonic stage. Um, but there are plenty of good examples of almost everything out there. Um, there are one or two things where we are world beaters, but usually if you look around, you can find somewhere in the world that's innovated and has done something better. Um, I'm a huge fan, if I had to name a country that I think is a regular inspiration, I'm a huge fan of how they do things in Switzerland. Uh, in terms of the cantonalism, the diffusion of power, in terms of the regular use of direct democracy, referendums on things, uh, in terms of the relatively limited power of politicians. Uh, and the good things that have flowed from that, Switzerland is the freest country in Europe, the smallest state, the third happiest country in the world, second richest country in the world. 
those things have happened because the structures and institutions created, not because the Swiss have some genetic property that the rest of us lack or, or some magical quality in their air or in their mountains. It's, it's that they have structures that keep the citizen big and the government small. And if we, of course, we wouldn't completely copy any other country. Switzerland would be a, a rough maquette. It wouldn't be an exact mould. But, but where we can see something working, we should look at how to adapt it to our own conditions. And, and this is obviously something you address in your book, What's Next, which is about you know, what we do, you know, Brexit has now happened, so, so what, do we, what do we do with it? Mm. And the challenge now is to be a more open, more global, more free market, uh, more free trading economy than we are as EU members. And I'm confident that we will be, although, you know, one can't just sit back. The one way in which we won't be is if we all just sit back and expect it to happen. It obviously requires a certain amount of, of pushing. Uh, I think there's been a disproportionate focus on our relations with the EU27. And I think that's actually going to be a much less dramatic story than commentators currently believe. Um, all of the media focuses on you know, what are they saying in the palaces and chancelleries of Europe? Are they going to be punitive or cordial? Will they be hard or soft? Actually, Willie Whitelaw used to say, nothing in politics is ever as bad or as good as you think it's going to be. The Prime Minister actually made this point explicitly in her uh, Lancaster House speech when she said, uh, we will, because we're transposing all the EU acquis into our domestic law, the day after Brexit is going to look just like the day before. Right? So the, 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 the day after Brexit is the day that we can begin to pursue a different trajectory. And there will be a gradual divergence, which I think will be to our advantage. But my guess is that quite a lot of the practical day-to-day -day arrangements with our allies in Europe will carry on as they are now, with the obvious distinction that we're opting out of the political structures and the, the Brussels institution. I'm much more interested in our relations with the 165 non-EU countries out there, with whom at the moment we have, uh, in very few cases we have trade deals through the EU, but in most cases we don't. And we now have the opportunity to do something bold and beautiful which is to open our markets across the board, uh, to do something that so far only small territories have done, Singapore and New Zealand and Hong Kong, no big country has ever really attempted. And if we did that, if we were prepared to dismantle our trade barriers and to interact with other countries on the basis of mutual recognition of products rather than attempts at, at harmonised standards, I think we can revive the whole world trading system, and that means the, benefit, the benefits will be felt not just by us, but by the whole world, including our, our European allies. Uh, but the real challenge is to make sure that happens, that the trade is not corporatist, that we don't have what was creeping into TTIP and creeping into the TPP, which is cartels and uh, you know, high barriers to entry, that this should simply be done on the basis of mutual recognition, that if, if you're allowed to practice in London, you're allowed to practice in Wall Street, if a drug is approved by the FDA, that's good enough for us. Once we do that, we've stimulated the whole world system. Which isn't just about trade, but about services, as you mentioned, because 80% of the British economy Correct. is services. Correct. And the, the EU has been very bad at including services in, in its trade deals, because its trade deals, understandably, are weighted towards the agrarian and manufacturing interests of the majority of continental states. Uh, Britain is now in a position to concentrate much more on trade deals that suit our own conditions and I think we can start with countries that have a similar orientation, a similar philosophy, uh, 
which is not just the obvious sort of core Anglosphere countries, but is also places like Chile, South Korea, and so on. Um, but I think very quickly we will see that we have uh, we can bring real advantages to our consumers and to overseas producers by, for example, uh, opening our markets in textiles and agriculture, uh, things that up until now the EU has been very protectionist about, but that we can now be much more open about. But what would you say to the argument made by Don Cummings, who was the you know, chief strategist at the Leave campaign? He said, you know, go global has been the favoured slogan of Tory Eurosceptics for mm. 20 years and has been a proven vote loser. If you actually look at what people want, they don't want to go global, they want protection. I mean, is there not a? I mean, obviously you. Uh, no, you, I don't. You, I, forgive me. I don't think that was his argument. His argument was that it didn't connect with people, not that they wanted protectionism. Uh, his argument was that it wasn't the most effective slogan. Uh, and as he, as Dominic tells you, when you're in a campaign, you use your uh, the slogans that people want. Well, take to that, work take that control not, has element, has obviously connotations not of protectionism mm -hmm. in the classic sense, but of protection. Well, it is true that. The world over, there has been a rise in protectionism since the financial crash and the bailouts. That's observable in almost every country. And in its various incarnations, it's produced Trump and Sanders and Syriza and Podemos and Builders and Le Pen and all the rest of it. They're all, if you like, delayed responses to the 2008 uh, event. If the polls are to be believed, that is much less true in the UK than elsewhere. Yes, we have swung in a, in a more anti-market direction as people always do during financial crises, but we were starting from a much more liberal base, and we are still, you know, in, in, in all the polls that I've seen, people will still say that free trade and globalisation on balance is a good thing and creates more jobs than it destroys. Which, by the way, is, is incontestably true. I mean, absolutely, logically unarguable. The trouble is that it is counterintuitive, you know. Uh, we have... Paleolithic brains. We, we have the minds of hunter-gatherers evolved on African Pleistocene savannas. And so we have a deeply ingrained instinct to provide against famine, to hoard food, to be self-reliant. The whole idea of being dependent on other people for the most basic necessities is, is an exactly counterintuitive one. It is running up against hundreds of thousands, millions of years of, of, of evolution. And also the idea of the tribe as our, you know, the, the, un the nation as the unit. Exactly. And that, that's even before you get to the really wacky idea whose bicentenary we celebrate this year, which is David Ricardo's uh, idea of comparative advantage, um, uh, which has been described as the only idea in the whole of economics that is both surprising and true. You know, most people will, will, will buy the argument that if we're really good at financial services and the Chinese are really good at cars, that we should import our cars from, from China and, and sell them our financial services. Where people really struggle is with the idea that the Chinese might be better at cars and financial services, might in fact be better across the board, more competitive and more productive in every single field than us, but that it still benefits us to have free trade. And that is a genuinely difficult idea. And, you know, the first time I heard it, I had to read it through a couple of times to see why it was true. And, of course, once you get the logic, you see that it has to be true. It, it, but, but it is but, very but, difficult. But, but the logic being for readers who haven't read it that that it would then make sense for the Chinese to concentrate on whatever makes them the most money, leaving us to do the thing which makes us the most money. I mean, any, anyone listening to this who really wants to find out, you know, if you Google comparative advantage, there are a couple of little five-minute videos that explain it with graphics, which are the best ways of doing it. But, you know, it, the fact that we're having this conversation, in a way, is exactly demonstrating the problem. The, the best way that I heard it described um, was somebody said... Um, 
Winston Churchill was a brilliant bricklayer. You know, he, he, he built an enormous brick wall around his house in Chartwell. Uh, it was how he and relaxed. a tolerable painter. And a tolerable painter, right. But, but his, you know, his, his brickmanship, or whatever the word is, was fantastic. And you can go and see how well he, he wielded a trowel to this day. Would it have made sense for Churchill to do all his own building and repair work? You know, wouldn't it surely have been a distraction from what he was really good at, which is writing speeches and delivering them and doing politics? And winning wars. And winning wars. So actually it made sense for Churchill to get a builder in, even though he, Churchill, could have done a better job than that builder. Because Churchill had a comparative advantage at doing other things. And what's true for an individual is true for a nation. You know, if, if China suddenly produces everything more cheaply than us, we can, you know, think of it as a family. You can then, by buying the cheaper produce, sustain the same standard of living while working shorter hours because everything has become cheaper. You've therefore freed up an awful lot of time that you can now go and, and do something else productive. You can earn money filling those extra hours. Now, it may be that you're earning money doing something that the Chinese can do better than you, but you're still better off in absolute terms than you were before. That's the freaky counterintuitive idea of comparative advantage. And how worried are you that Donald Trump appears to have absolutely no idea about this? Well, you know, it, it, it is worrying. The, 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 the prospect of a trade war between the world's largest and second largest economies is horrifying. I mean, it's horrifying for us as the second, as you know, as the biggest investor in the UK. That's, you know, we would be very badly impacted simply because we we own things in America, let alone actually being America. That would be catastrophic for some of them. And the the most severe uh, price, I'm afraid, as is always the case in these situations, will be paid by some of the people who are Donald Trump's most enthusiastic supporters. Uh, the, the, the the most fake idea of all is that protectionism helps the little guy. It really is the opposite of the truth. Protectionism always and everywhere takes from the many to give to the few. It, it uh, props up a handful of cosseted and privileged producers who have millions to give in donations and to, to spend on lobbying to get the tariffs or the barriers that they want. But the whole country pays a price in terms of increase in prices and a decrease in living standards. And so, I mean, I, you know, I can kind of see, I don't like it, but I can see a, a brutal political calculation that says there are lots of steel-related jobs in swing states. I will privilege those jobs over anyone else's because they're in swing states. Coal so producers. Coal producers, you know. So, I mean, I, I, to take it away from steel, uh, sugar is very, very heavily protected states. The price of domestic sugar is about twice what it is at uh, world prices. This immensely benefits some sugarcane planters in Florida, uh, particularly the very big ones who can make the big donations and get the law uh, written for their convenience. A price is paid by everybody else. There's been, a, a since the 90s, a big shift of factories that make sweets, confectioners, to Canada, where sugar is cheaper. But the costs are dispersed and are not necessarily in swing states, whereas Florida is important. So I can sort of see the brutal political argument. And it, in fact, I, I'd summarise it in four words. The, 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 the trouble is that free trade brings dispersed gains but concentrated costs. The, everyone is a little bit better off, but nobody says, oh, that's because of the free trade agreement with China. I'm going to vote for the guy who signed it. They attribute their good fortune if they notice it to themselves. 
Whereas the, 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 the concentrated losses are felt by industries who will vote accordingly, and that's why it happens politically. Okay, I get that. You know, I don't like it, but I've been in elected politics long enough to recognise the phenomenon. What I really can't stand is the cant and the pretense that you're doing this to help the small, you know, that you're standing up for the underprivileged, you're helping the little guy against the big conglomerates. You're doing exactly the opposite. And all of those well-intentioned, altruistic people who are protesting G20 meetings and occupying stock exchanges and uh, you know, howling against TTIP, I know that they think that they're somehow standing up for the poor against the big multinationals, but in practice they are doing exactly the opposite. Nobody gains more from barriers to trade than the big corporates, and nobody gains more from their dismantling than the poorest people on the planet. So in the words of your book, the, the what next for you will partly be about making this case? Yes, I think that there is, you know, you were right to say public opinion is not where I would like it to be. Uh, and it, although it's a little bit better in Britain than in, in most places, it, it, you know, uh, it, it's an argument that we have to keep winning in every generation because it is counterintuitive. It, it, it's up against our genome. Uh, that is partly a question of showing why free trade makes everyone better off, uh, showing logically why that's always true. But I don't think that's really the argument that is going to appeal to our uh, dreadlocked occupied friends, or indeed the sort of softer version of that, the, 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 uh, the kindly Tory mum, uh, you know, at the uh, church bazaar insisting on fair trade. I think the only way to capture that kind of, that sort of soft protectionist opinion is to, is to recapture the moral case for free trade, the way it always used to be made you know, in the 18th and 19th centuries, that free trade is the ultimate instrument of poverty alleviation, of conflict resolution, and of social justice. That we all benefit from it, but the biggest beneficiaries are the poor who find that falling prices benefits them proportionately more than anybody else. And even more than them, the people who have been visibly benefiting most in the last 30 years are the, the poorest people in the world. The, the, the seamstress in, in Bangladesh, the you know, mango grower in Africa, who suddenly find that they're able to, to find a proper market for their product and without needing handouts are then on a trajectory that will take them up to, to, to something closer to our living standards. Thank you for listening to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor, and I hope I'll see you again next week. If you like this, please subscribe.